You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. We have been, as Ethan said, working our way uh, through the New Testament book of James this summer. And James is full of all kinds of very practical insights and a lot of wisdom, which is why we've called this series Street Smart. Street Smart is well, it's a practical kind of wisdom that stands in contrast to being book smart. And while the Bible is a book, it is a book about real life. And what that means is it is meant to be applied to real life, not just learned, not just studied. And so today we conclude this series by looking at what James says about staying smart. And this is important because the streets of real life are dynamic. They're always changing. Our circumstances around us are always changing. The unexpected seems like it's regularly happening. And we, we're not the same day by day. We change over time. And what that means is that we can make a lot of great decisions, and then we can do something incredibly foolish. We are never as stable as we appear to be or as we would like to be. Given the right amount of pressure, we could crack. Given the right amount of temptation, we could fall. We are only as smart as our last decision. So after four chapters of practical wisdom, James concludes by telling us how to build a life of wisdom, how to stay smart over a lifetime. And he identifies two of the big reasons why smart people do dumb things, even though they know better. These are the two reasons we're going to look at. First, smart people do dumb things because of a lack of internal restraint. The the desire for more and more grows. And it takes over a heart, and then it takes over a life, and as people are wanting more and more, they end up doing incredibly foolish and dumb things. The second reason people don't stay smart is a lack of external support. So it's a lack of internal restraint and also a lack of external support. They decide to go it alone, and therefore there's no one around them to help them grow over time. And there's no one there to help pick them up and get them back on their feet when they fall, which is going to happen to all of us. So we're going to look at these two this morning. First, we're going to begin with the need for internal restraint. We need internal restraint. If desire is just let loose, it will dominate our lives. And eventually, it will destroy our lives. And according to James, money is often one of the key indicators of desire out of control. Now, let's be clear. Money is not a bad thing. Money is needed, and it can bless the lives of many people. And being rich is not a bad thing. People who are rich can be a source of tremendous blessing. But there is a kind of desire for money, for riches, that can consume and over time, ruin a life. We see examples all the time. And this is the kind of rich person that James is addressing here. Now, you may not think of yourself as a rich person, but let me just give you a warning up front. We all are tempted with the heart of a rich person, and that's the problem. And what James says is very challenging to all of us, even if we don't have a lot of money. Here's what he says. The last chapter of James starts this way, verses 1 through 3, James chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people. 
Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now, if you've been with us through this series, we've talked about what a straight shooter James is. So he doesn't pull any punches. He just gets right to it. So this is a, another ouch. That's direct. This is the way James speaks. So he says, your gold and silver are corroded. Corrosion, of course, is the damage or the destruction of a substance due to a chemical reaction. It eats it away. Eventually, it can completely eat away something. Now, what's interesting about this verse is that the gold and the silver that's being mentioned, well, gold and silver have been the primary forms of currency throughout all of history because of how little they do corrode. I mean, gold is the least corrosive of all the common metals, and silver is number two on that list. So that's why gold and silver have been currency throughout all of ancient history. But God is not talking about chemical corrosion here. He's talking about the corrosion of a life and how money accelerates that corrosion. He basically says through James, money will eat your flesh like fire, like a big acid fire. What does that mean? Well, I could summarize it this way. We'll talk a little bit more about it. But I would say what God is saying is while you are busy consuming your money, your money is busy consuming you. It's like a big acid fire consuming your life. I mean, in the end, everything we see will be no more. Money will be no more. Every currency will be completely worthless as if there was a big acid fire that eroded it. Our bodies, you know, our flesh will be no more. Now, right now, our bodies need money to support life. We need it for shelter, we need it for food, and the rest of our physical needs. And as money flows in and out of our accounts, both it, money, and us, our life, are being corroded over time. What that means is, we are being eaten, our, our life is being eaten up hour by hour. We are closer to death now than we were when we woke up this morning. And eventually, it's going to be gone. It'll be no more. So where is the money that you spent last month on food? Well, it's gone. Well, where's the food you bought? Yeah, it's gone too. And this is what money does. It's, it's not bad, but it's, it's as if a big acid fire ate up the money and whatever it was used to buy. Again, that's not wrong. That's just the nature of this life, money in this life. Eventually, it and everything it buys is gone. Now, we know this, but we just don't think about it that much. And so, over the course of all of our lives, a certain and varying amount of money will pass through our hands, along with a certain amount of time. Finally, we will spend our last dollar and we will breathe our last breath. And the big question at that point is, all right, what do you have to show for it? What do you have to show for those hours and those dollars? And what James is warning us about is for many people, it's just going to be a big black spot like an acid fire on the ground where your money used to be and where you used to live. That's the big question. Is, that, is it going to be just a big blackened spot, or, 
Or will there be something of eternal value left from the time and the money that God allowed slip through your hands? If all we do is chase money, what James says is money is going to take the witness stand against us. He's going to testify against us that we wasted our life. I mean, he's painting a courtroom image as if you just imagine a dollar bill or maybe a hundred dollar bill taking the stand against us. We're the defendant. We're defending our lives. I mean, what would money say? Money might say, you know, you, you know Your Honor, I, I'm money. And as you know, I'm completely worthless now. I used to be worth a lot, but I'm, I have no value. You know this. And in regards to this defendant, I testify that I and all that I bought is all that they have to show for their life. That's all that they have. That's money testifying against you or me. So we don't want that to happen. How do we prevent money from taking the witness stand and telling the truth about us and what really mattered to us? Well, that requires restraint. We have to restrain our money and the desire that comes from it. Well, how do we restrain money? Well, first we need to understand that there's really only three things that you can do with money. You can spend it, you can save it, or you can give it. That's all you can do with money. Spend it, which you need to do if you want to eat this month. Save it, which is wise to do for the future. You know, investing is a part of saving. It's a longer-term approach to saving. Or you can give it. So spending goes to the present. Savings goes to your future. Giving goes to a future that's beyond you. Now, we don't usually have a problem giving too much. I don't know of a single verse in the Bible that says, whoa, hold back on that giving. You guys are way too generous. That's generally, that's never been a problem for me. That's not a, a general problem. The problem comes in the first two, the spending and the saving. It's pretty easy for us to spend too much and even to save too much. And that's where the desire for more runs rampant and it takes over heart and it dominates a life, and it leads us to do incredibly dumb things. So how do you know if you've lost control of your heart in the spending area, in the saving area? Well, it would be really convenient if, through James, God would just give us a number, and then we would know. But of course, every person is unique, and every situation over history is very unique, so there, there's no number. There's no easy way to say, hey, you're spending too much. Or, hey, you're saving too much. So instead of a number, James gives us a description of what it looks like when we're, we've lost control in the spending area and when we've lost control in the saving area. And then, having understood what these words represent, it's up to us personally to evaluate honestly, are we saving too much? Are we spending too much? No one can make that decision for you. That's... You and God need to figure that one out. So, let's look at the categories. First, in the spending area. Here's what James says about spending too much. Verse 5 says, You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. 
Ouch. James is saying, you know that you've lost control of your spending when you are living on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. So the first question is, what is luxurious and what isn't? Where is that line? I mean, is God okay if I buy a Toyota, but he's not okay if I buy a Lexus, the luxury brand? No, it's, it goes much deeper than that. I mean, you can drive a Lexus, a Toyota, or a bike and still have a heart where you're living for luxury and self-indulgence. The, the New Testament is written in Greek, and the Greek word here for luxury literally means pleasure. You have lived on earth using money as your primary source of pleasure, is what it's saying. That's luxury. The point is not the products that we buy and whether they're luxurious or not. The point is the place that those products have in our hearts. When money becomes your source of pleasure, what makes you happy or sad, what causes your emotions to rise or fall, you will spend too much. Why? Well, when money becomes the key to your happiness, how much money is it going to take to make you happy? More. Always more. You're going to need more and more and more and more if that's the key to happiness for you. The word for that, James says, is self-indulgence. You're just focusing on yourself. It's on you. And it's on more for you. And James has an interesting statement about what a person whose spending is out of control looks like from God's perspective. Here's what God says this looks like. It says, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Another way to say this is God is saying through James, watching you spend is like watching cows eat. That's, what, that's what's being said here. Have you ever watched a cow eat? How do they eat? Have you ever seen a cow push back from the trough and say, that's a little rich for me? No, I mean, cows, they eat all that they can. Why? It's because they don't have the capacity to see the future. Even though they've eaten every day from that trough, they don't have the mental capacity to say, you know what, tomorrow morning, there'll be more of this. They don't know that. So they eat like there is no tomorrow because in their mind, there is no tomorrow. They can't see the future. And that fits perfectly with the goal of the rancher who sells meat by the pound. So they just put food in front of the cows and the cows get fatter. The rancher makes more money. The sad thing, of course, is that cows have no idea that they're eating their way towards the slaughterhouse. And you can't blame a cow for not picking up on this. I mean, they, they don't have the capacity for deep reflection. I don't know if you ever looked into cow eyes. They're not deeply thinking about anything as, best, as much as I can tell. I mean, they can't look around and say, hey, has anybody seen Dave? I mean, I was eating right next to him yesterday, and now he's gone. And while we're thinking of it, I haven't seen Fred in a while either. <laughs> hey, you know what? I think something's going on around here. I don't think this guy feeding us has our best interest in mind. I, I, I'm not sure, but I, 
I don't know if we should trust these people. No, they, they can't do that. But what James is saying is we don't have cow brains. We have people brains. And what that means is we can perceive. We can look around and see that people are dying every day. And therefore, we have the capacity to get enough sense to know that our years and our money should add up to more than how much we weigh financially in the day of slaughter when we die. We should know better. We should be able to perceive that. So that's the warning about spending too much. Now, how do you know if you're saving too much? Here's what James says at the end of verse 3 of chapter 5. He says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Hoarding is the word that he used to describe you've gone too far. You're beyond the limit here. You need to rein back in your savings. Hoarding occurs when you set aside way more than you need for the future. Well, of course, the problem is similar to spending, like with luxury. Well, where is the luxury line? So where is the hoarding line? How do you know where the line is between wise saving, which we all should do, and hoarding? Well, let's just say, for example, you knew you would die next week. You had seven days left on earth. Let's say that you're all by yourself. You have no family that you're concerned for their support after you're gone. It's just you. You got seven days left. How would that change what you did with your money? Just think of these three things you can do with money. Spending, saving, giving. How, how would that change? Well, I would guess you would probably spend a little more. You might do some things you've been wanting to do that were expensive because, hey, I got seven days left. Uh, you, there's a good chance, knowing this bunch, you'd probably give more because you want to make an impact in the future. I think the last thing that any of us would do is, I got to save some more money. I mean, the reason is obvious. We only need enough money for seven days. We can figure that out pretty easily. The problem is we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know how many days we have to provide for ourselves for. So how much money do you need between now and when you die? And most of us are not all by ourselves. We have families, and we'd like to help them out. And so how much is enough, and how much is too much? Well, the assumption usually is probably more. And James would question that assumption. I mean, for me personally, I'm saving for retirement. Hopefully you are too. It's reasonable to do that. It's wise to do that because there's a good chance for whatever number of reasons you're not going to be able to draw an income at some point. And you don't want to be dependent on other people. You want to be responsible for yourself. So you need to save for that. So my wife and I are saving. How much should we save? Financial advisors have formulas. What I've noticed over time is formulas keep getting tweaked, and which is fair because the future is unknown and they keep adding more factors. Keeps going up. For me personally, my wife and I personally, we, we've come to the point where we realized a number of years ago that we will never save enough to keep us from having to trust God for the future. Which you know is okay because that's the way we've lived our life. But we still need to 
saved. Where's the line? For my wife and I, and I'll just be honest for a little moment here, the, the, the opportunity that came up for us to give to this kids building that we're building over here came at a great time in our lives. At first thought, it came at an awful time in our lives. Because we're at the point in our lives, I have no retirement announcement to make, but I'll be 62 next month, so I'm getting older. And so it's at a time where we're probably a little more focused on what do we need when there is no more income than I definitely was in my 20s and 30s. And the opportunity to give something substantial beyond what we normally give was a great process for us to think through and pray through. And I know many of you went through this too. But by deciding to give, that automatically meant that wasn't going towards savings. That's what it meant for us. And what God led us to give has helped our hearts on this area. You see, because giving is the one thing that we can do with our money that reigns in both spending and saving. Whatever you give, you're not going to spend, you're not going to save. And it's God's way of just dialing our heart in. How much should you give? How much should you save? How much should you spend? I don't know. God gives us categories, and we have to honestly wrestle with these things so that the desire for more does not take over and ruin our lives and make us one big acid fire. So we need internal restraint. Second thing we need, James says, is we need external support. If we go it alone, which increasingly people in our culture are doing, we will have no one to help us grow, and we will have no one to help us when we fall down. And I'm not saying if we fall down, I'm saying when we fall down. So James concludes the last section of his book by presenting four scenarios. He starts with three and then he ends with one scenario. So let me read all four. The first three are in James 5, 13 through 14. He says, is anyone among you in trouble? Scenario number one. Well, let him pray. Is any, anyone happy? Scenario number two. Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Scenario number three. Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them. And he goes on in a few verses later, verses 19 through 20. To say this, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, scenario number four, and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sin. If you can get someone, as they're wandering away, to get back on track, oh, you save them all kinds of pain. You might even save them their own life. And all kinds of sin that would cause them pain and other people. That's the last scenario that James is talking about. Now, the first two scenarios are better done in the company of others, but it's not essential. You really don't need other people to do the first two. You know, if you're in trouble, you can pray. You can pray all by yourself. But I think most of us would be honest and say, you know, it's, it's better to have some people praying with me. If I'm in trouble, I'd like to have a few people praying for me too. Scenario number two, if you're happy, you can sing all by yourself. You can go on a drive and crank up the radio and sing to the top of your lungs. But you know, it's just more fun to celebrate with other people. That's why we gather to celebrate. You know, we've been watching the Olympics 
my wife and I, but gathering with everybody on Wednesday night, that was more fun. This is more fun to celebrate with people than all by yourself. So the first two scenarios, you don't need other people, but it really does make it better if you have some other people. The last two scenarios that James describes, though, he describes them in such a way where you, you can't do these by yourself. If you're sick, call the elders and have them pray. That implies there's other people involved. If you're wandering away from the truth, you're wandering away from God, you need someone to notice you and come looking for you. The obvious assumption that James has in this last closing statements of this book is that these Christians he are writing, he's, he's writing to are all actively participating in a local church. That's the operating assumption. They know who the elders are. They know who the leaders are. They know who to call and ask for prayer. And if they wander away, someone is going to notice and come looking for them. It is inconceivable for James to think of a Christian apart from participation in a local church. Now, this high opinion of the importance of church is not common in our culture. Many have decided to turn faith into an independent venture. Even among those who attend church, many have decided to keep that church at arm's length. If you talk to them, the reason is pretty obvious. I mean, they will say, I'm all for Jesus. Following Jesus is great. But to trust in an organization of people, that seems risky. And you know, they have a point. They're right. People are people. But you see, there's more going on in the church from God's perspective than just a gathering of flawed people. This organization of people called the church in the New Testament is called the body of Christ. That's significant. You see, if Jesus was just an idea, if he was just invisible, you could relate to him in any way you wanted to inside your own head. But he wasn't invisible. He walked the earth 2,000 years ago. What that means is that we have to decide whether we're going to follow him or not follow him. Believe what he said or not believe what he said, because he's a real person of history. Not only was he visible 2,000 years ago, he is visible today. Not in the way he was 2,000 years ago, but he shows up on earth now in the form of the church. Now, why is the body of Christ such a big deal in the New Testament? Well, James gives three reasons. Here's the first one. Righteousness matters to God. That's the first reason James gives. In the scenario of being sick, he said, if you're sick, James' advice is you should call the leaders of the church and ask them to pray for you. Why? I mean, isn't your voice loud enough for God to hear? Of course it is. But the question that James is bringing up, the question is not volume. The question is the righteousness of the people doing the praying. That's the issue. So in verse 16, James says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. What is righteousness? Righteousness is simply the decision to live your life aligned to what God says is right. To take him seriously. It doesn't mean to be perfect because no one's perfect, but it means that what God says is right, that's the way I'm living my life. And that shows up in prayer, because when we take God seriously, he takes us seriously. 
When we aim to be righteous, our prayers are more powerful and they are more effective, James says. James gives an example of this. Verses 17 through 18, he says, Elijah, the prophet from the Old Testament, said Elijah was a human being even as we are. He says he's a human being because he was revered among the Jewish people as one of the greatest prophets of all time. But he said he was a human being just like we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. You can read about it in his story in the Old Testament. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Any Jewish person reading these words 2,000 years ago would have jumped at the chance to have Elijah praying for them on their sickness bed. And this is James's point. If you're part of a church, there are some Elijahs in that church that can pray for you. They're not perfect, but if you read the story of Elijah, he was not perfect. But they, like Elijah, are serious about following God. Now, your personal righteousness really is important. If you want your prayers to have more effect and more power, then taking God seriously does that. That really matters. But man, when you're up against the wall of sickness or any other trouble, you want the big guns. As many as you can get. Again, no one's perfect. But you want people who are serious about God praying for you. Where are you going to find those people? They gather in the church. That's where you find those people. So we need the church because righteousness matters to God. We also need the church because people matter to us. If you're sick, James has a second recommendation, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. One of the possible causes of sickness is sin. It's not automatic. It's not guaranteed. But it's one of the causes. So whenever you're sick, it's pretty wise to think through, is there any sin I need to confess? And confess it. But the question is, why do you have to confess it to each other? Why not just confess it to God? Isn't it enough just to confess it to God? That's great, but it's not always enough. Let me explain. We don't need to confess our sins to each other in order for God to forgive us. God forgives us. We don't need anyone else involved in the transaction for God to forgive us. So why do we confess to each other? It's because we do need to let a few people know about our sin if we're going to break the power that it has over us. You see, sin is a nocturnal creature. What I mean by that is it grows and it feeds in the dark. And when your sin is a secret to you and nobody knows about it, you can confess it to God all day long and its power will grow and grow and grow. I wouldn't recommend you confess to everybody, but (laughs) confess to a few people you can trust. Where are you going to find people you can trust who are also serious about sin? Church is one of the great places where that can occur. You see, it's not until we confess our sin to others that we are really, really serious about dealing with it. That's because people matter to us. We care what they think. If there's something that's important to you and nobody else knows about it, you know what I would say? It's not that important to you. If it's really important to you, other people will know. 
if dealing with your sin is really important to you, other people will know. The third reason James gives for the importance of the church is our moral compass is busted. It's broken. That's why we wonder. Verses 19 through 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wonder from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. If one of you should wonder, the implication is this happens. God has given each one of us an internal moral compass. We call it our conscience. Now, a compass requires an external reference point in order for it to actually give direction. So, in the northern hemisphere, a compass, the needle points where? To the magnetic north pole. That's an external reference point that allows us to guide our movements even in the middle of a forest. It's an external reference point. If you put a magnet next to a compass, what happens to that compass? The needle goes to where the magnet is. It starts spinning around. And you'll get lost. This is how sin impacts our heart. Sin is like a, a magnet on our moral compass. Sin basically says, it's all about me and what I think is right and wrong. And at that point, your moral compass just starts, and you just start going in circles, chasing your tail. You wander off. You'll get lost, and you'll never find your way back without help. What that means is we need someone to come looking for us. You know, for a wanderer to be noticed, they first need to belong. How are missing persons reports filed? By the family members who notice that they're gone. That's how you get a missing persons report. A, someone who already belongs is now gone. If you wander off and there's no one to come looking for you, what that means is you haven't really attached yourself anywhere. You don't really belong. It's not that you shouldn't belong, it's just you haven't made the investments to belong. The church is the family where us moral wanderers belong. This is where we belong. We will wander away from the truth. The question is, will anybody notice and go after us when we do? Now, these three items that James is talking about, righteous people praying for you, people to confess your sin to, someone who comes looking for you when you wander off into the weeds, these three, they are not services that the church provides. In other words, you won't find these on our website. These three are at the core of a church. They are the natural result of what happens simply by investing in a local church over time. You can't show up and ask for these services any more than you can suddenly belong to someone's family and have them notice you because you met them yesterday when you're gone. This takes time. And if you're not connected to a local church, here's what James says that will mean for you. There will be less prayer for you from righteous people when you really, really need it. And you will have little to no accountability for the sin in your life, and it will grow in power. 
And when you wander off, which you will, there will be no one to notice and come looking for you and help you get back on track. The streets of this world are dangerous. They are not friendly. We need the protection of the church to survive. And what's happened during COVID is all of us were sent to our homes, and some of us have reconnected, and some have not. Many are out there just wandering, not just from this church, but from every church. And it's dangerous out there. Let's pray. Father, you know for me personally, one of the most chilling words that I've ever read in all of the Bible are those words that you have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. Father, the truth is, all we know is this life. We've lived day after day after day in this life, and so it's just easy for us to project our own past experience on the future and then just grow comfortable in thinking that the future is just going to be like the past. But you warn us that the end is coming, of this life is coming. And we've never experienced death. We don't know what's going to happen in the next life. And so it's really easy for us to put it out of our mind. It's easy for us just to live for this life only and to fatten ourselves up before the day of slaughter. So God, I don't know what that means for everyone else here, but I, I have some sense of what I need to do to reign in my heart. And I pray that you would give insight to all of us so that when that day comes for us, we will not be caught flat-footed and shocked, but we will prepare for it. I pray for all those who are out there wondering right now. Oh God, I pray you would give them the courage to gather with your church again. Whatever church that is, God, I pray you would bring your church back together so that the enemy might not have a heyday in picking people off. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.